Welcome to This Is What Raising a Feminist Looks Like, a podcast hosted by me, Leifa Singleton Norton, about how families are using feminism to inform their parenting or how the political plays out in our personal lives. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, lands that were forcibly invaded and of which sovereignty has never been ceded. I would like to pay my respects to elders past, present and future. I would also like to pay respects to the elders of all First Nations lands this podcast is broadcast to. I would particularly like to acknowledge the strength of the women who've been raising children on and caring for this land as part of the longest continuing culture on earth for many thousands of years, and their resistance to racist policies, including those which are currently seeing more children removed from their families at greater rates now than ever, including during the stolen generations. It is the responsibility of all non-Indigenous people to listen to a diversity of Indigenous voices and reckon with our complicity in settler colonialism. This is ongoing work that we encourage of all our non-Indigenous supporters. In this episode, I talked to Erin Farley about raising her son, four-year-old Jose. Erin has over 15 years' experience working in communications and campaigns with not-for-profits, unions, government and in politics. She has a BA in communications and a master's degree in environment and planning. Prior to the birth of Jose, she was the senior media advisor for Australian Greens leader Bob Brown and then campaigns and communications director for Australian Greens leader Christine Milne. She has coordinated national campaigns to deliver better public school funding, protect manufacturing jobs and ensure traditional owners control of their country. She's also a long-time board member of Snuff Puppets, a Footscray-based giant puppet theatre company and a dedicated activist. We chat about single parenting, the motherhood penalty on careers, public discourse on mental health, deafness and the gendered nature of English language acquisition and much more. I hope you'll enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed hearing Erin's insightful thoughts about feminism and parenting. Let's find out what raising a feminist looks like. This is what raising a feminist looks like. Welcome to This is What Raising a Feminist Looks Like. Today I'm joined by my guest, Erin Farley, who I met many years ago because my Mm. partner used to work for the Greens and you at the time were working for the Greens as well. Thanks for agreeing to come and be on the podcast. Thank you for asking me. I'm really excited to have a chat with you today because I think you are in a similar situation to me in that we have lots of kind of left-leaning friends, left-leaning worlds, left-leaning workplaces. And so often people assume that I guess you feel like you've got it sorted within yourself, what feminist parenting would look like or what any kind of parenting with a social justice angle or any of those things looks like. Do you feel like you, having been embedded in those worlds, were kind of set up to parent in a kind of socially progressive way? I mean, I think it's really interesting because I guess I... I didn't really think in a really practical way, how do you parent to instill values and what actually will parenting do for my own situation in in that respect, I guess, which in hindsight was pretty slack now that I think about it. Yeah, I think I think I just kind of thought, well, what's good and bad or what's right and wrong or like how to do things will be a lot clearer than than it actually is when you become a parent, which is like across the board with everything you do. You know, how do you make them go to sleep and how do you feed them and <laughs> yeah. how do you make sure they grow up not to be horribly sexist assholes? Like yeah. none of it is clear. <laughs> it seems like if you're just not an <clears throat> asshole and if you believe in sleeping at night, they should at yeah, least have those two things, it'll right? follow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, how I wish. Yeah. Um, way back when, when you were pregnant, did you have um, lots of kind of set ideas about parenting or were you going into it kind of like, this will be however it's going to be? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I had some ideas about how it would work, but to be honest, I think I was more focused on, I mean, I was very focused on the birth, which I think yeah. is something that people who are pregnant for the first time do a lot because that just seems like the most insurmountable <laughs> challenge yeah. that you're going to face and you, know, you can't really like see past it. It's like, yeah. you know, how am I going to have this experience? Yeah, that is going to be right for the baby and right for me. I do really remember being struck by how by kind of patriarchy infiltrates the medical system and really feeling like I had come across it in a very explicit way for sort of one of the first times in my life yeah. and also feeling really amazed actually that we have the kind of system we have in Australia which I think is the result of actually a lot of really kind of sustained and also subversive work by women um, yeah. to actually you know, enable other women to give birth in a way that's not undermined by men's expectations. I think you're right about the fact that the fight against the patriarchy that you have to have just to birth in a way that feels right and okay for you is is actually a really big battle too. It is something that some people, I think, are prepared for in the sense that, you know, maybe they've seen other people go through it or uh, they have ideas themselves about the way that the medical field works against or probably unsympathetically to women when you started on that journey did you find it hard to advocate for yourself because I know one of the things that a lot of women find hard is that you're being told all the times how all the time how high the stakes are Mm. so on one hand you're trying to fight against this idea of you know actually medicalization of birth and medicalization of pregnancy more specifically is, is not necessarily the best way to go about this but on the other hand Everyone's always telling you like, well, if you don't, the risk is, you know, you don't have this beautiful, perfect imaginary child that you've got at the end of this, you know, experience. Yeah. I mean, I I did actually do a lot of reading about pregnancy and birth when I was pregnant and kind of feminist books about the process and that medicalization of it. And I did things like I got a doula for that reason, you know, also because I sort of felt like I wanted to have a woman present at my birth that it wasn't going to be enough just to have my partner at the time who's a man to know that I kind of had a a woman and I wanted someone who was an expert in birth who was a woman to be there so I kind of I did that and then I kind of sort of set in place all of these sort of structures to help me be able to advocate strongly because I'd read all of like Rhea Dempsey and stuff about you know if you don't prepare yourself then you'll get railroaded you will yeah you will this is what will happen yeah Um, But then even still, you know, when I was giving birth, exactly what she predicts in those books that kind of came up, it did feel quite hard to advocate for myself because it's very difficult, you know, when you're like literally half naked and undergoing probably the most intense, or for me, the most intense physical experience you've ever had, then also have the rational presence of mind to, yeah, have an argument with someone who does it every day. And also when you've got the weight of cultural kind of stories and experiences behind you, most of our 
popular culture around us shows you very medicalized births with women lying on their backs in hospitals with a doctor ready to catch a baby yeah. at the end of the bed. And and I think also like I just I remember um one time like just it was when I was at my due date and I went in there was this like literally like oh, an old white man in a white coat he's like did the examination and he started just talking he's like oh yeah you know when you're giving birth here's a script go get it filled in and they'll set you up to be induced and then I was like I remember and I remember just feeling like totally shocked because I was by myself and almost in tears because I'm like well I don't want to have to go do that now and I said to him do I have to do that he was really offended he's like no you don't have to do that if you don't want to you'll just have to come back blah 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 it was like even the fact that I'd questioned him he seemed to find really offensive and I remember just leaving and being in tears not even because he'd done anything that bad but just that implicit pressure and that the question wasn't even asked like what would you like to do yeah it was just well here is what will happen you have no agency this is yeah. how it's supposed to go yeah and even as you say having read say Rhea Dempsey or anyone else who talks about why hospitals need us to give birth on certain schedules and yeah you know why things have to happen within certain time frames because this is what's easiest slash best slash whatever risk management yeah. style for a hospital it can be really difficult when you hear that because you are as you say on one heart it's your rational mind that is grappling with that here is the ultimate of an expert an old white man in a white coat yeah. who I'm told my whole life has all the answers and here's all of this reading and you know preparation I've done for myself but I'm not a medical expert and so you're kind of grappling with that instinct that you can trust and also the wealth of information that women have provided to us about the mm. alternatives but on the other hand yeah that ingrained sense of how you fight back against someone in that kind of position of power yeah when there's so much on the line yeah and I think also just being in a like a decision-making environment that's very different to what I normally would have done so I was in you know like a senior high stakes job that had a lot of pressure and a lot of stress and I was responsible for lots of decisions really quick ones yeah like quick decisions as well but you know all of my abilities in that area they don't count for anything when you're kind of in that environment so yeah that's also makes it even harder I think going back to sort of original question around like how did I think I was going to parent I think I was more focused on how do I, how am I going to finish my job and how am I going to not be working because that had actually been the most important thing to me yeah. so then like the other kind of questions of parenting which I guess they're just so abstract as well until you're in it yeah I sort of wasn't even really aware of what I should be thinking about in that space yeah yeah so you worked right up until what point so because I was on a commonwealth public service EBA so they like you to finish six weeks before your due date and I hadn't had a holiday so I did decide to finish like six weeks before my due date and then I was like two weeks overdue so I was like so sick of hanging around the house and not being able to move much yep (laughs) and I wish I had worked longer actually because I was really bored (laughs) yeah and was it the first time in your adult life that you have kind of had a big chunk of time off work because I think that's something a lot of women yeah have to grapple with at that point too um stillness I had had times where I wasn't working but I did find it really hard because I was like oh, I'm going to be really productive and I'm going to do all of these things and then like the actual like rapid cessation I just found like I couldn't get stuff done and I still kind of wanted to be involved in what was happening it was very hard to let go of that world so it was yeah I couldn't wait for the baby to come 
so I had something to do. <laughs> and I'll bet you really loved everyone telling you, just sleep now. You're never going to oh sleep God, again. yeah. You know, all the wonderful things people say yeah. to you. <laughs> right yeah. Um, and did you have an idea when your son was born what kind of time frame you would take off work and what kind of work, like whether you'd go back full time or part time, whether this was going to be a, a period of change in your career or whether it was going to be, you know, kind of a break and then back to usual? Uh, I think I definitely had an idea that I wouldn't go back full time. I couldn't see how that would be possible with the job that I had where I was traveling between Melbourne and Canberra for sitting weeks and that kind of thing. So I was thinking that there would be a change, but I guess the thing that I was unprepared for, well, I thought I would probably go back to that job in some way or possibly, which I then I didn't end up going back to that job because uh, my boss resigned, which then meant I was made redundant because I was working for a politician. Yeah, I was not prepared for the loss of status. I think that's the thing I really struggled with the most and yeah. that completely floored me because I was not expecting I would lose, like I thought I would change jobs in the way that I've changed jobs a lot of times before in my life. I didn't realise I wouldn't be able to get the type of job where I you know, had the seniority and the respect and also I guess just that so much of my self-identity had been structured around my work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then when I had a, a child and then wanted to have a job where I felt like I was being able to parent properly, those kinds of jobs just aren't, you know, are very rarely available if you want to work part-time or you're not able to devote that level of commitment or like drop everything or working all the time. And especially for you working in an area of media and communications, there is a lot of expectation about your availability outside of a nine-to-five work environment. Yes. Um, and it's kind of billed as that's the job you can't yes there is no way to not have that in high stakes environments as you're saying yeah that's a huge challenge I think one thing that having a child really made me aware of is is just uh, the need to be present yeah and how often people are not present because of work pressures or the way work pressures kind of feed into that like I started really noticing how when my partner arrived at home he was still on his phone and I'd be like can you just you know I haven't had any adult conversational day can you just put your phone down and talk to me looking yep. at me in my eyes yep. <laughs> for 20 minutes kind of thing yeah and also feeling really aware when I was on my phone or doing stuff that was making me not be completely present with my child I mean not that kids require you to be you know completely devoted attention all the time but it was something that I was very aware of and I really didn't want to be having to struggle with all the time yeah but then at the same time yeah there's this expectation that people are always on they're always available and then that means that they're also always checking their devices and I think that those were the kinds of jobs I'd done before and then that meant those jobs weren't available to me. Yeah and you use the word status like loss of status and I think that's a really interesting choice because as you say it's not just about wanting to go back to work and be productive and you know we get sold a lot the idea of family-friendly workplaces is women can re-engage at any point. Did you decide you wanted to go back to work and start looking for those jobs or was it kind of a gradual process as you were at home thinking if I go back into the workforce what does that look like? It was more of a gradual process at home so I did some consulting and that was something that I you know I probably could have made an income out of but I also I found it really sort of isolating and I really wanted yeah. to be able to be working with people you know in an in an office. Yep. With, I just wanted to be around people during the day Yeah. so I, I did want to get an actual job. I also sort of wanted it to be 
Like I'm not constantly looking for new work and that kind of thing. I just wanted to know that I'd have a a salary. So yeah, and then I was looking for jobs that could be part-time. So I applied for full-time jobs and then would ask for part-time hours. Yep. And then I ended up working at an organisation that was happy. It was a full-time job that was advertised and then I did it four days a week. I wish I had actually asked for three days a week. I did have other um, organisations, large progressive organisations, just when I said, you know, I'd like to be able to do this part-time or job share and not even want to have a conversation about it. Yeah, wouldn't Even though, yeah, they were offering me a job interview or I'd done a job interview and, you know, they were potentially going to offer me the job. They just weren't even interested in having the conversation. The first job I took, it was because I thought it would make me feel like I was still in a more senior position, like it wasn't an actual step backwards on paper, although kind of in reality it was. Yeah, and then my relationship ended and I was in a situation where I really wanted to be able to work a day less a week because my son is deaf and has some other kind of additional needs and I wanted to have time to be able to help meet those needs. So then I was looking for a job that I could potentially do three days a week and pay my my mortgage on. Yeah, Um, as a single parent. Yeah, as a single parent. So, I mean, I've been really lucky in that I have been able to get a job that enables me to do that. I know that there's a lot of kind of discussion around that word lucky in that, you know, it's also that I worked at a level that was senior enough and, you know, enabled me to get those. Yeah, Yeah. established my career. I'm, I'm kind of okay with it. Now, mostly I'm resigned to it, but it was something that I really struggled with, particularly I think because my ex works in the same kind of field. So I just would look at his career, which continued to move upwards in seniority and positions that are high profile and well-known and my own just being sort of what I could get that was structured around my needs to be a parent, whereas that was not really a consideration, I think, for my partner when we were together or after we separated. And it's really hard when you both work in the same industry because it, it becomes such a stark comparison. Like yeah. It's really <laughs> clear. That must be really hard. I think you're right too about the fact that when we're partnered, it is difficult, whether it is the same industry or not, I think, to see somebody else, it's almost like it, it's not a break in their stride. It just keeps going. Mm. And I know for lots of different families, there are ways you can work around that, whether that be conversations that you have about who's doing what, when, and whether this means that you can kind of stay home for a bit and maybe later I'll do that or any of those kinds of things. Was it something that you spoke about openly in your relationship before you separated? We did. I mean, it's always hard to know because, yeah, I do know of women who are in really senior roles who are just totally smashing it in their careers from part-time positions. You know, I do also think about, well, is it me and my abilities or what I've, you know, I'm able to accomplish and how I think about myself that's the problem here. I think I think that is something that women probably have to contend with a lot more likely than men. Yeah, the self-doubt like, or the... Yeah, and, you know, where do I have agency in this situ- situation and where do I not have agency? agency because it's it's never really quite clear yeah I mean I think we we did have conversations around you know how we would do pick up and that kind of thing and my ex leaving leaving work early to pick up our child so he was not at childcare you know for such a long period of time four days a week that kind of thing probably we didn't put enough thought into it ahead of time well and I kind of felt like I was doing all of the like how are we gonna logistically how the fuck does this work like how how does how has everyone been doing this all this time it's really hard like I literally cannot work out how to have enough hours in the day to do these things. Yeah, whereas he was just kind of like, we'll 
work it out and it'll be fine. And I'm like, well, it'll be okay because I will work it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a very familiar situation to a lot of people who are Things partnered. Things don't just work yeah. out. Like yeah. someone works them out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that labor in itself is exhausting. Yeah. Um, you know, it's something I think we underestimate how much it takes just to feel like all those balls are in the air. And just because someone is saying, I'll catch that one when it comes down, doesn't mean you don't have to think about how it mm. actually works in with all the rest of them. They don't just kind of operate in isolation. Yes. But I mean, it's just also, yeah, it's just always all new as well that, you know, before you have a child, you can just really mostly be responsible for yourself. And then suddenly you actually have to work out how to be a team in a way that is conscious of a whole lot of other elements that you kind of hadn't really had to think about. Yeah. I think particularly for women who have a really strong career focus and who, as you say, are used to being very independent Mm. and who have maybe had that situation where their partnership is a part of their life but maybe you know you have a very open idea about what that partnership is and how you support each other and both you and your former partner worked in high profile positions but also in kind of high pressure positions is probably the the better word Mm. you were kind of both used to being quite independent about well this is how I achieve this and this is what I do and sometimes here's our space together but there's this whole other world that we're both a part of yeah and you're right like that negotiation around how we do it together you have to do it but we haven't always kind of prepared well for it I mean I think it was certainly the case for myself and I think it's the case probably for a lot of people is that unless you you happen to go through some kind of a life crisis at some Mm. point prior to having a child a lot of the time the first time you really need your partner in a way that has a lot of pressure on it yeah is is after you have a baby and I think that's something I personally sort of struggled with because I had always been very independent yeah and it's this combination not only of sort of emotional needs and this like whole kind of readjustment of who am I if if I'm not this job yeah but it's also physically manifesting needs of you know I I haven't slept my body is still healing you know all of these kinds of things that for me were like completely foreign and I had no idea how to ask for help about that kind of stuff yeah particularly Um, when you value your independence when that's one of the things you hold really yeah esteem in yourself yes and I think also it was maybe it's kind of strange for me as well I think because so I'm I'm the third generation single parent my mum and dad never lived together it was always just me and mum and so my mum just did everything and I I would see my dad but he moved away from the town we lived in when I was about five so I'd just go and visit him for like three or four weeks once a year in Christmas holidays so there was really no other adult that was actively involved in any of my kind of domestic scenarios yeah I didn't really have any models for like how do two people work together so that I've thought about a bit around what does that mean for my parenting and how do I want to make sure for my child they know that you know you don't have to do everything for yourself you know how do you put in place relationships that mean you're not kind of isolated and responsible for everything yeah and the ways that those can be nourishing for you not just in the way that we think about nourishing as like a relationship and a love thing but also in terms of your life the way that being a partnership with someone particularly as a parent can actually strengthen what both of you are able to give to your kid or yeah all of those things yeah I mean I think it's stuff like how do you negotiate conflict yeah so growing up with a single mum and then so your grandma was a single mum as well yeah and I think in some ways probably quite similar in in that I think my grandmother's husband left when my mum was like three or four or something when she was very young 
in Queensland in the early mm. 60s, I think there was a lot of sort of shame and bitterness associated with being a, a single mother and she never repartnered or remarried. So, you know, very proud. That yeah. would have been hard going. Yeah. I mean, she did have family support from some brothers and as in everything, she's a difficult person yeah. <laughs> it's in a lot of ways. But yep. yeah, I mean, I think just the fact that she did manage to raise two children and she worked from when my mum went to school anyway I think and in Queensland in the the 60s she had to be pretty tough and very you know kind of independent and proud my mum is quite a lot like that though it sort of expresses itself in different ways yeah yeah Yeah. so when you face the idea of okay this is how it's going to be this is going to be the third generation of (laughs) being a single parent were you totally jazzed about that the look on your face just then said no not really well no I mean I think it's that thing that you have an idea of a family that yes. doesn't ever exist in the real world. No. So I, I did have a lot of grief around this loss of an idea of this family I was going to have, but I didn't ever think I, I'm not going to be able to do this, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I just focused on how how am I going to do this? Yeah. yeah. How am I going to make this work? Yeah. And I think once you talk about co-parenting with someone that you're no longer in a relationship with and you live separately from some of the stuff around co-parenting obviously gets harder because you're having to negotiate with someone where you might have very different ideas and there's two different households at play Mm. but in some ways I've heard some people describe to me that they have found it a bit easier in other ways because it's meant that they can kind of go about how they want to parent in their space and their time in the way that feels right to them yeah did you feel like there was some freeing that came along with the as you say the grief or the letting go in all of the formal advice you get from the government around existing as separated families like when you Mm. look online to kind of go, oh, how to how do you, how are you supposed to do this? A lot of it talks about kids cope very well with two different systems. Kids are very resilient, and there are certain things that are non-negotiable. But those things are actually really very fundamental. Like, does your child need a medication to live? Yes. Okay. Both parents have to give them that medication. Yeah. Do you agree with giving lollies and your partner doesn't? Well, that's just something that will happen differently in different houses. Yeah. So what's fundamentally important and what's not and trying to then sort of pick your battles in some ways yeah I can and I can live a lot more like how I want to live and I feel quite lucky in some ways in that I get way 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 more time to myself than like nearly any other mother that I know who is in a partnered relationship because we have shared care and you know sort of four or five days and nights a week um, my little boys with his dad and so that that's great makes me feel kind of schizophrenic some well that's not really the right word but it's just like this I'm either like completely parenting or it's completely absent which is kind of you know I do like that time to myself but it it feels like a total adjustment all the time that I do still struggle with sometimes yeah you know the the negotiation of of co-parenting is is obviously like dependent on having a, a good relationship where you can have discussions about stuff which I mean I think yeah my ex and I do pretty well although it's it's not 
and I, I mean I don't really know how this would work otherwise I think it, it really just depends on the kind of relationship that you have with your partner like it's not a given that in partner relationships this happens but the process of making important decisions and thinking about what my child's needs are um, I feel like I'm mostly doing that myself and yeah. then consulting with my ex so you're driving it yeah I'm definitely driving it and if I ask him to do something he will do it sometimes yeah. like you know if I remind him about it enough times yeah you know like he picks him up and does all those kinds of things but the thought the thinking stuff is is all with me yeah and the making of decisions is also all with me which is a really gendered situation like in heterosexual partnerships it yeah. is very unusual for that not to be the case yeah I mean I think that's one of the things that I really wish was different was that I had someone to help me in doing that thinking yeah. but I realize that that's not about whether or not we're in a co-parenting relationship that for a lot of people that's the case when they're in relationships as well it's yeah. just like that is that is something that I think would make life feel a lot less kind of weighty is having someone else to talk to about how do you bring up a child in a way that makes a healthy happy adult eventually I mean there are plenty of books about it yeah. I'm not sure I've agreed <laughs> with any of them that are entirely that I have read um yeah it is it's a real struggle too to find ways to have that one of the joys of, for me since becoming a parent has actually been in finding women that I can do some of that talking and thinking with mm. so I'm in a heterosexual partnership where as you say I'm in that dynamic of we live together we co-parent we're in a relationship but actually I wouldn't say a lot of those conversations are necessarily had with my partner either mm. I feel like the weight of that research and the thinking and the responsibility happens and more often than not I talk to other women about those things do you find that you do the same are there women that you can talk to about that yeah I do a bit I probably need to think about how to do it more I'm really lucky in that I've got some really amazing female friends and I actually I saw someone having a, a kind of a talking about this on Facebook a, a few months ago how they they felt like they had lost touch with a lot of their female friends Whereas I feel really privileged and um, lucky that my relationships and friendships have gotten stronger since I had a child and I think a lot of that's about actually not working as much and being around more and realising that I needed to value my personal human relationships because they were important and they require work as well. Yeah, absolutely, which is so important and I think something that men are not socialised to do in the same way that we are. Yes. And I think it's a saving grace for women a lot of times that we do understand the nurturing that has to go into those. And that's something that I'm actually actually really conscious of between the way that I'm parenting and the way you know the things that my ex does is that I have very consciously kind of set up a network and a village partly because I kind of saw the experience my mum had where I think she didn't really have that partly yeah. because that's the kind of the type of person she is and probably I think a lot to do with like never having any time to herself and having to work full time and yeah. being tired probably so I have very deliberately set up my life so that I, I never go a weekend without seeing people whether I've got my son or not but I think it, it the a lot of the I mean a lot of the questions and things that I'm thinking about relate to my child's is deaf so how to deal with that so I do like, reach out to online communities about that and kind of have gone to play group a deaf play group and talked about that kind of stuff but I think just the day-to-day struggles are the things that I I probably need to find more people to talk to about <laughs> I mean it kind of happens in passing but not in that way where you feel really oh I actually 
am worried if I'm totally breaking my child yeah. here <laughs> or yeah. if maybe my child is breaking me and yeah. I'm on the edge. <laughs> you kind of don't necessarily want to, like, talk about that at the park. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I've had those days where yeah. whether somebody else wanted to or not, yeah. we're talking about that yeah. at the park. Yeah. yeah. I do think it's interesting too. Some of it comes down to luck. A lot of it comes down to luck. A lot of it comes down to when you get placed in your local mother's group. Whether yeah, I didn't really like any of mine. Yeah. <laughs> See? Nobody ever I mean, does. No. You were listening. You were yeah. lovely people. Just stay in touch. <laughs> Some of them uh, are nice. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. You can be perfectly nice people, but it doesn't mean that they're, they're your people. I remember I did about a year with my first mother's group and there was one woman that I really clicked with, probably because we both always had our foot in our mouth and um, <laughs> yeah. were constantly saying things and then thinking, oh, that that didn't go so well the only person who's laughing at that is this other okay that's great so I kind of uh, after a year I realized I'd had my time of talking to to people and I really needed people in my life because I didn't have a lot of friends who had kids Um, I really needed people in my life to talk about poo with yeah and it was like yep I've had a year of that I'm pretty much over it I don't need to talk about poo anymore there are other things that I'm worried about and that's when the differences started to become more apparent yes and it wasn't that I needed to be with people who parented exactly like me but I did need to be with people who who kind of considered and thought about things more the way I did and were maybe as obsessive stupidly obsessive about (laughs) what was happening with my kids uh, my kid at that point and I was lucky enough that I convinced the great woman from my first group to come along to another one that was kind of starting up locally and I that's where I really found people who were as invested in kind of thinking about some of these more socially progressive Mm. ideas and grappling with feminism explicitly and in a parenting and a motherhood environment but that is luck I'm just lucky that I found that group and I've definitely found that reflected in online groups elsewhere but it is something that is so important at that point in our lives as you say to have that village Mm. but oftentimes our family structures aren't set up that way where we have our aunts our cousins our matriarchs around us in, in that proximity and building those kinds of communities at that point in your life can just be exhausting yeah, you having to really put yourself out there at a point yeah. in time where you're feeling physically exhausted and also insecure and, and grappling yeah. with all of these other things. I think the other thing that's really stupid and hard about the way we live in Western cultures like in Australia, if you're from that background, is you don't see child rearing for mm-hmm. large parts of your life. Yeah. So then when you come to do it yourself, it is like this whole thing that you're totally fearing out on your own because you haven't watched your your aunt who's seven years older than you raising children yeah or have smaller cousins and I'm, I'm, a, I'm an only child as well so yeah. it's just like this thing where like I think I barely saw a baby for about a decade of my life because yeah. I was hanging out with people like me and they didn't have kids yeah and um, going to a workplace where you don't see people's kids yeah exactly. or you do maybe for two hours when they bring them in on an afternoon and then that's it yeah you know, there's so no... my only interaction would be like if I went to a cafe and someone had bought their child and I remember being one of those horrible people I'm like oh can you just not have your yeah. kid in here while I'm trying to have a coffee your child's literally going through my handbag like, yeah and I'm so hungover <laughs> yeah. right now this is like, too much noise yeah, yeah and I'm sure your child is very cute to you but I don't give a shit <laughs> yeah yeah none of us were like that actually though I'm sure that's not true at all nobody can relate to that 
Yeah, but it is true. And I think that's one of the things that I really feel is important to me as a mother. And for me, a lot of it manifested around breastfeeding. I was a big advocate for public breastfeeding and I still am. But to me, I'm not really worried about who breastfeeds or how long they breastfeed for or anything like that. But I am worried about the fact that women are pressured to make it this secretive, like it's not just babies eating. It's mm. actually, you know, this idea you of women should... your breasts. Yeah, yeah. And women should keep it private and, you know, even the the sanctity that people want to give it like it's this private special moment between a mother and a child well actually a lot of the time it's really not Mm. and it's not a great bonding moment and surely there's some of that there Mm. but most of the time it's just okay my baby needs some food time to have some food there you go shut up if i put this in your mouth you you might yeah be quiet go to sleep (laughs) stop whining whatever it is Yeah. yeah and so for me breastfeeding was one of those real frontiers where oftentimes i would feel uncomfortable or i would feel self-conscious but I would make myself do it because I felt like that was the least I could do to kind of claim space as a mother and that actually I wanted other people to see it and be uncomfortable and I only ever had kind of negative comments a few times and nothing really serious and I know other people have obviously Mm. have those moments but were there ways where it manifested to you when you were a mother did you think okay well no actually I am taking my kid into the cafe and I'm gonna let them run under your hand (laughs) were there ways that you felt like the very act of living your life became political becoming a mother influenced my politics I really I mean I had definitely felt discriminated against occasionally for being a woman but not in a way that I really that made me feel disempowered for a long time yeah you could kind of brush it off yeah I could brush it off or I could go oh my god that guy was such an an asshole I'm glad I don't have to deal with that person every day or whatever whereas becoming a mother is really been one of the most profoundly disempowering experiences of my life like also empowering like I feel quite proud of the things that I've kind of achieved yep. because I'm like, well, here is the thing that needs to happen so I need to make it happen and I did. I don't think I've necessarily felt like oh, in living my life I'm creating a, a nuisance and I think I do I do try to because I remember how yep. I was a, an idiot and I do try and remember that. Also that thing because I have also seen people, I think it's that thing where like, oh, I have a child, I'm so special, you know, everybody else be inconvenienced by me and what I'm doing and I I do try and be respectful that you know if people are in a space then everybody like everybody has a right to you know like it's not just my kind of rights and needs triumph over other people's because I have a child which I think some people can kind of tend to have that attitude it's more around economic situations and yeah work I've had workplaces that were fairly accommodating and very accommodating, like in terms of flexible hours and and all that kind of thing. I think for women, if you're in in other places where it's not so flexible, it would just be really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, you've been in the situation where you know that you're qualified for a job, you get good positive feedback, but then once (coughs) you start talking about what you need to work Mm. as a person with a child in a workforce, then suddenly that's shut down and it's just, oh, well, we we can pass on that skill and that person because we'll just find this elsewhere without the inconvenience yeah I think it's I think in some ways if it was as explicit and harsh as that it would be easier because then I would be able to go well that's not that's that's, discrimination yeah we're not doing this yeah it's it's more about the kind of like social and professional status of people and how that is derived I think particularly in the field that I'm in where you kind of have to you have to maintain like a personal brand yeah I was never very good at that anyway and I'm even worse at it now 
I think, and I mean, I think also like just having to make a big deal out of it and not wanting to have to make a big deal out of it if something's yeah. hard or... Do um, you think that you're expected to keep the work of parenting and motherhood invisible in a in professional contexts and as you go about your life? Like, sure, we'll give you flexible working arrangements or sure, you're still here in this field and we know who you are and you're still working and that's great. But actually, the minute that parenting starts to leak into that, is that where you feel like there's pushback? In my current job, no. Uh, my boss is very much like you're not making a widget there's no clock on and clock off and that kind of thing so that's been really great in my previous workplace I think there was a lot of lip service to it but you know if push came to shove then they would be like well you know you're not being as good a member of the team if you've got these you know these limitations on your time and and in in the past before I had a child um, and I've been really guilty of this myself I think it's just not really understanding when you have a child like you have these really hard parameters around when you can be at work and when you can't and what you can do and what you can't do you know if all you've got to take care of is yourself then you're like oh yeah oh that's fine I can stay until whenever or I can just get Mm. this thing done because that's what we need to do at the moment when you have a child you just don't have that luxury you have other responsibilities yeah and I think especially if you're a single parent you have other responsibilities and no one else is going to meet them for you And it also works in reverse too where it can be all well and good while everything's going according to the program and everyone's healthy and well and things are steaming ahead. But the minute there's a cold and it wipes out your child and Mm. then it wipes out you directly afterwards, suddenly it's sick leave and it doesn't matter what the project is like at work, you have no choice. You need to be there for your child. And that's not the kind of thing you can schedule. And no matter how good you are at scheduling, Mm. it's not going to work. And I think that's something that a lot of workplaces fall down with too sorry actually I can't do anything about where my kid starts vomiting they're vomiting I've got to deal with it I think it's also that expectation in particular types of work of like being fully committed to the role yeah so it's like well this is the most important thing it kind of is that blurry space around status because if you're in high pressure profile jobs there is that sort of expectation that this is the the most important thing and you're really devoting yourself to that job because that job's important and then when you have a child that can't be the case a lot of the time yeah so then that means those kinds of roles aren't roles that you seek out and therefore you don't have the opportunity to have that kind of respect or status in in those circles yeah and growth yeah yeah opportunities whatever yeah it's also interesting when you talk about that kind of self-selecting out of that yeah Um, and I think that's something that a lot of women do because we feel like well of course my child will be a priority and you want that as much as you want the career option or whatever it is and actually a lot of workplaces rely on us self-selecting out Mm. of those things instead of rethinking workplaces as to how they can work for people no matter what stage of life they're in and no matter what other things they need to juggle. A lot of workplaces are still built in a really male model. Mm. They're built very much that someone is at home taking care of all of the stuff or juggling the balls or doing whatever. And if you're a woman who can have someone at home doing that, then that's fine. Mm. But if you're a woman who can't, then that's not okay. And also for a lot of men, I think, who try to do some of that as well they can feel that pushback too Mm. Um, which makes me think about how much it is around the way that we work hasn't changed much despite the fact that we've gone to mostly to income households with both of us trying to juggle or a single parent attempting to a single parent with somebody else there's no nowhere near the level of home support for me it was something I was really struck by when I first went back to work Um, and I think this is 
this is something around you know that feminism obviously hasn't handled well is that you know when it was that kind of nuclear family with mum staying at home I mean all of that work that happened in the house was seen as work that took time and was important even if it wasn't kind of valued in the same way that paid work was whereas now I think there's this thing that the work involved in running a house and having children is something that can somehow fit in around the edges yeah not that it like it's actually work that takes a lot of time and effort and thought yeah. as well yeah so usually. it's not just like the kid goes to childcare and then you can go to work yeah so like there's all this other work that happens and you know people without children a there's less of it because there are less humans and you know maybe you've got a cleaner or you know there's just less mess or you've got more disposable money to solve those gaps and you've got you've got more time you know so you can you can do it people need to be enabled to go to work yep like it takes work to let people go to work because someone's got to buy the food and make the food and clean the house and all those kinds of things yeah yeah and as you say it's somehow expected that that what was a full-time job for someone is now going to fit into the margins of life and I think interestingly too quite often this is a a challenge that we come up against at the same time as say for example you're going I've been home on maternity leave and during that time even though childcare itself is a full-time job a lot of people who stay home as the primary parent during that first year or however long you have at home end up doing a lot of the domestic load along with that Mm. well I'm home so I guess I'll do the cooking I'm home I guess I'll do the cleaning and oftentimes that can mean a different dynamic to when you were both at home as single people Mm. where you might have shared those more evenly but now someone's home it sort of almost feels like oh well you can take care of all yeah you're at home all day yeah what else is going on and so then you find that maybe the the division of those kinds of works actually slides more and quite often into a gendered because quite often it is a woman staying home if you're with a male partner. And then once you transition out of that and you go back to work, that's a really tough period too because all of a sudden, as you say, you've got this third person who creates somehow five times more work mm. and you've been kind of making that happen while you're at home but now you want to transition out of that. And it's not just that, oh, okay, and here the other person needs to kind of pick up the extra that I maybe was doing on their behalf that they used to do when we were single but also here's all this other work and you've got to renegotiate how to do that between the two of you and that's huge Mm. like that's and again when someone's not home they don't see a lot of what is happening to keep everything flowing okay yeah and I think a lot of it it's also it's administration yeah it's it's scheduling and all that kind of stuff so it's not even like oh if I stopped cleaning then it would become apparent fairly rapidly it's like just stuff that needs to happen that you're thinking about that isn't visible but uh, if it doesn't happen then that's you know there'll be consequences yeah absolutely yeah and something you've touched on a couple of times is that Jose is deaf and has some other stuff that needs support how did you start to find out about that and was that another area where you felt like that labor had to come from you was that another point in that relationship yeah yeah definitely um I mean it got picked up in newborn screening and then I mean he probably should have gotten hearing aids straight away but for some reason they told us not to come back until he was nine months old and then he got hearing aids but I mean I definitely I mean I think I'm not sure how much of this is about sort of also individual personalities and stuff but I definitely took the proactive role in okay what does this mean setting up the early intervention services thinking about 
how do we accommodate this? What changes do I make? You know, learning Auslan, what school is he going to go to? Reading about deaf culture, like all of the kind of stuff around what does this mean for him? What does this mean for how I parent him? Yeah, whereas um, my ex-partner Adrian was much more, I mean, I think part of it was about also not necessarily kind of coming to terms with it. Yeah. But I think that like that's also... That's also, I was um, talking with another friend about this, you know, that kind of effort of working through your own feelings is something uh, that is expected of women. But men, I find quite often will say, I'm sorry, I'm really bad at talking about my feelings. I know I'm not good at talking about my feelings, but they still don't necessarily take active steps to get better at it or at least try to proactively deal with it. You know, if I were to say, oh, look, I'm sorry, I'm just a really bad cook yeah um, but then expect that you are going to make all my meals for me like, yeah it's just not really like it's not really fair whereas I was kind of like oh, okay here's this thing I should probably talk to people about it who do I reach out to what are the support networks that are going to give me the skills to be able to negotiate these all these decisions those kinds of things also there's pros and cons to all the different approaches in terms of you know I tend to be like okay a problem how am I going to solve it what are all the things I'm going to do and that's not necessarily always the best approach either like it's kind of a way of dealing with anxiety (laughs) yeah yeah oh that doesn't sound familiar at all um yeah if I write out a project plan for this I won't have to worry about it yeah for sure but also I think that a lot of services and a lot of intervention when you have stuff going on in early childhood again the way the system is set up is here are all these appointments and you've got to make them nine Mm. to five Monday to Friday and you don't have any choices by the way because when you get that appointment you're lucky enough to get that appointment yeah so off you go this is the time this is the place this is what you have to do Mm. there you go all of it is kind of set up again for this do you have someone at home to do all of this yeah well I mean it was really interesting I think it actually uh it helped Adrian see it more from my perspective once where we were having a conversation around you know him taking time off work to look after Jose when he was sick or something or other and I was like look from my perspective I take two unpaid days off of work every single week to allow you to have your career because Jose has needs that mean he needs to be taken to things during the day and someone's going to got to do that and therefore I have chosen career and work around that yeah you know and that penalizes me financially I'll have less super you know my job options are reduced you know I'm doing a different job than I probably would be doing otherwise when I sort of put it in those terms he kind of understood it if you have a child with with additional needs that just kind of adds this whole other layer of work yeah where it's expected that you're available in the daytime to care for your child and that you that affects everything else yeah and as you say if you're already the one kind of juggling all of the balls then it's just adding more balls to juggle which can be exhausting in and of itself so if we talk a bit more about um you said that you felt your politics were kind of re-engaged around the personal when you became a mother lots of things all of a sudden you kind of you alluded to feeling more trapped or more constrained by gender based stuff do you feel like you had any view into that before that was your own situation had was that something where you had kind of heard people talk about it but hadn't really internalized it or was it an actual shock uh no it was a total shock and I was completely ignorant to it and very kind of unfeeling whenever I did encounter other people you know needing to attend to their families in a way that affected how my immediate need of them when I was at work um, in a really horrible way and I apologize to all of my previous colleagues (laughs) 
I mean, I would, you know, I hope I wasn't. They really should make a worst. greeting card for that, though. You know, like I often think about the way that I spoke to friends who had kids about arrangements or things. I'm like, where's the Hallmark card for yeah. I get it now, I'm sorry. Like yeah. that's something we all need as a new parent. Yeah. There's a lot of those to send out. Yeah, sorry for being a bastard before I understood. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was a total shock. And I mean, I think like everything is. But yeah. I like, you know, and you read things about it, but then suddenly you're like, oh, my God, and you're like, shit the article and you're like yeah this is <laughs> ranting on Facebook for a year and a half until you kind of stop doing that it's also something now I I think I, I tended to you know in terms of activism and politics it was much more about my job and participating in organized campaigns whereas yeah. now I'm a lot less interested in that I feel much more rewarded about the type of stuff I do that's in my actual everyday life and that's made me also think about how politics and the kind of progressive sort of set have this thing around organized campaigns and going to phone banks and signing things online or um you know running a campaign or going to a town hall meeting or you know doing those kinds of things going door knocking um and the kind of subversive activism that women have always done around supporting communities and babysitting for my neighbors so she could go receive her master's degree or you know I had a friend live with me for six months those kinds of things are not kind of publicly acknowledged as stuff that is changing the world yeah because it's women that do that work yeah hugely so and I know um, we were talking just recently about a mutual friend of ours who has an asylum seeker living with them it seems like sometimes the progressive field is there to stroke the ego rather than actually thinking about what they personally can be doing it's like it gets you it's like a get out of jail free card well Mm. I work for a progressive organization who deals with social justice in x or y form and so I don't really have to think too much about my own personal life or how I live those things and I think you're right about the fact that it's a lot of the time women who are just doing that work in their community it's yeah yeah and I mean I think this is probably less about feminism and more about the kind of performative aspect of do-gooding these days with social media and kind of progressive stuff yeah that's that's something that I have actually really noticed there are all sorts of ways of caring and making a difference but they're not going to be recognized and they're therefore not really sort of seen as important except to the individuals you know whose lives you're touching yeah I think that's very true and I also think that when we talk about emotional labor around relationships too one of the things that I took quite seriously um, when I had my first child was I really again had that idea about the village I came from a big extended family and being an only child and my partner having only one sibling who has children I kind of knew that that wouldn't be the case for our kids and so I was quite interested in well how do we have local community and how do we have people like I said I didn't have that many friends who had kids so how do I find a network to support me but also of like peers for my my kids to grow up with and it was me thinking about that work and it's something that later looking back Tim and I have reflected on how valuable that's been not just to us as people not just to our kids for community but in really practical ways those are the people that we rely on for childcare in school holidays where we trade childcare with each other because we all know each other our kids are comfortable and safe and happy with each other but that actually helps our careers that helps Mm. you know like all of us are uh, in situations where whether we're partnered or not in same-sex relationships or not one of the parents is working full-time and the other parent is working part-time and as a part-time parent once school holidays come around as you say you're already taking two days a week that you're not working and doing these things you can't just yeah imagine 
imagine a world where all of a sudden, yeah. oh, I can just take all these days off for two weeks here and then two weeks here and then two weeks here. Yeah. And it's benefited my partner's career as much as it's benefited mine because he, again, doesn't have to have that time off. And I think that that's the kind of work that we do consider to be invisible too in our community where we talk about whether people are at home minding kids and how much a lot of people and my family is one where we have grandparents who are involved who help us to care for our kids we talk about what does that do for our economy or what does that Mm. do for our society all those little bits are mostly made possible because of women creating community or doing the silent work I think and I think it's also I mean because it's you know I feel like I'm not that great at it and I have to, you know, like to kind of put yourself out there to make a relationship that's around your child. It's interesting yeah. now my child is kind of getting older and so like that kind of thing of organising play dates and oh, it's like yeah. kind of like I feel like I'm right back to kind of high school. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what if I'm going to get rejected? And, yeah. you know, those kinds of things that are hard to, to do. Yeah. Very hard, <laughs> very hard. Yeah. Particularly when it starts to be kids that your kid is naturally drawn to where you you might not necessarily yeah. feel that comfortable with a parent or, as you say, even just the, the kind of high school thing of, but I have to put myself out there. Yeah. That's not comfortable. I don't like that. It was so funny organising Jose's birthday party recently because I was like, what? No one wants to come. And then there were like so many people there and I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Turns out I know too many people. Let's get it. We're going to whittle you down from yeah. now on. Too much. Too but much. also, yeah, and then like talking to the, the parents of – like I'd met their children because Jose goes to kinder um, yep. and so because I, I pick him up I see them but I hadn't met the parents before and then having yep. their like weird awkward conversations and you like literally have nothing in common with these people yep. except that you that your children know each other and yep. how do you broach that or yeah. you might have plenty in common but you don't know because how would you know yeah. like you have no context for it all yeah yeah particularly around and again I find this because so many of my circles or my partner's circles are around progressive ideas organizations social justice all of that stuff or politics and then watching the way that it plays out in people's lives is never as simple as it seems as you say Mm. there's big campaigns and there's all this stuff but sometimes it's in the mess that you find the most work being done yeah yeah it's different work that's making the world a better place i guess yeah yeah very (laughs) true how i'm thinking about it very true yeah um so i'm interested in you know i have a real passion about um boys and feminism and what it's like to try to consider feminism when you're raising boys do you find with jose that you are talking about or thinking about ideas around gender and sexism and all of those kinds of things he's at kindergarten and i know i remember from avery's years at kindergarten that's when i started hearing things like boys can girls can't etc is that the case for him is he at that yet I haven't noticed that coming up yet, really, from his childcare um, or kinder. I guess the the thing where it's come up for me most frequently is so Jose's language is delayed and so one of the things that we work on is he and she yeah and so doing speech therapy the degree to which our language is gendered becomes really apparent because you're actually teaching it from a building blocks perspective rather than it just kind of happening organically which is kind of how most children develop language yeah and so I like having conversations with his speech therapist um, because you know they'll have cards that have a person with long hair wearing pink in a skirt who's the girl because I realized then he would be looking at things and it's not that he didn't necessarily know he and she it's that I hadn't been kind of specifically going oh well this is a girl and this is a boy and I'd actually been trying to you know say boys and girls come in all sorts of different ways and having conversations about that to the extent that he could 
Yeah, and his speech therapist saying, yeah, look, I know, it's just that, you know, you need to learn in English. So now I think about it so to, in order to teach it, I say, is is that a boy or a girl? And then he decides yep. if it's a boy or a girl and it will sort of just depend on what he's deciding at the time. And then we go he or she. So I ask him rather than kind of always kind of going, oh, well, that's a boy or that's a girl based on what they look like. Yeah, that's great though. That's a really good kind of gender bending tip is the yeah. length of space to come up with their to own answer. It and then go with whatever it is mm. yeah it, it yeah it's kind of hard though because that thing of well anyone can be a boy or a girl you can't actually teach english if yeah. you don't force a child to make distinctions at some point so i mean that's something i found interesting yeah i think the other stuff will come i mean it's probably happening i just don't necessarily know because jose can't talk to me about it yet yeah i mean i have done some things like he's got some girly clothes and I don't really yep. kind of care so much and you know like I buy him things that I think are cute that people might normally give to girls but I personally don't really like pink so I don't yeah. <laughs> like um you know I haven't sort of gone out of my way to do that and he he's not really that interested in looks so much you know he'll just fixate on wanting to wear a particular article of clothing I want to wear my wiggle shirt no it's in the wash well that's it. Yeah. Like, End of the world. We're not doing anything else today. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Yep. How dare you wash. Yeah. It's and, yeah, in terms of stories, books and stuff like that, I mean, I have been conscious around, oh, like they're all kind of male and female characters and trying to mix it up sometimes. But, yeah, I haven't really sort of done that so much. And he doesn't really, like he's not watching TV shows where there are strong fantasy narratives. We, he mostly watches The Wiggles and Sally and Possum and – yep. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what he's watching at Adrian's house, but yeah. Yeah. And as you say, having that uh, need to frame things differently for him because he is deaf and that raises different challenges in different ways. I like the example that you gave where uh, it's something that you have to face up front and actually make a very conscious decision about, whereas I think a lot of the time when we have children who are learning language by just absorbing and osmosis more or less, mm. quite often we don't even notice how gendered certain things are or as you say that the building blocks of our language are that way yeah. it actually gives you a really different perspective probably yeah and I mean I've sort of tried to do the thing around teaching of correct words for body parts and yep. things like that because he, he kind of periodically is very interested in in penises and vulvas and things yep. like that but I haven't gone into talking about gender in a much more complicated way I think just because he doesn't have the language skills for me to know what he's understanding about it yet anyway so yeah we'll probably come to that i'm sure it'll come, yeah. it'll come up <laughs> yep i am absolutely positive it will. and a lot of kids come at things at different ages too regardless of what their language building block is like or whatever else there is a real difference in the ages that kids start to engage with some of this stuff and one of the things that has surprised me as a parent is as you were saying before he's periodically interested in penises and vulvas mm. well in our house the same thing happens like every so often it's all about reproduction and how this works and how that works and then it goes away for ages and then it comes up and there's a different level of complexity and understanding. And that's something I wasn't kind of prepared for either. I really thought that a lot of the education that you need to do around anything, but if we're talking about feminism and those kinds of things at the moment, that it's kind of 
not necessarily one conversation, but mm. that once they've got it, they've got it, and then you've kind of done it. Like, oh, okay, well, if I establish it well enough in the beginning, then it's fine. But it's never, yeah. <laughs> never that simple. Why? Why can't it be that simple? Yeah. That would be nice. I know you were talking before about one of the things that's important when you're thinking about gender and sexism and feminism is role modelling. And you were talking about how now thinking about the fact that your child doesn't have two heterosexual parents living in one space and he's going to see you doing everything, as you mm. say. All that domestic stuff that we try to talk about is done across both genders and it can work like this and it can work like that. In your household, you are doing the cooking, the cleaning, the everything. Or what are the other things that you think about when you think about role modelling gender? Like is that something that weighs on you? I mean, in some ways I think it's good because he'll, you know, he does what, what I do. I mean, again, it, it'll wax and wane depending on what he's interested in. But, you know, he went through a stage of really wanting to do the dishes and or hanging out the washing or doing those kinds of things. And I guess because he's not seeing, oh, that's something a mum does, whereas dad does the sweeping outside or whatever. Yeah. It's just like mum does everything. That I guess that's kind of good. I mean, it'll be interesting to negotiate, you know, because I think at some point probably, you know, his dad will live with his, his new partner. And obviously that will be, you know, not an environment that I really have very much influence over. And, you know, that will be something else to kind of think about and, and be conscious of. And I guess it's that thing, you know, like you can't really control anything around children, how they learn, what sticks, what doesn't stick. You can just try and have conversations about it. And when you get it wrong, tell them when you think you might have gotten it wrong and hope for the best. Yeah. Put aside some saving for therapy for yeah. <laughs> the future. I don't know. Oh, I've got a good savings account going yeah. for that. Um, one of my favourite things is the it's not whether you fuck them up, it's how you fuck them up. Uh, I find that oh, really comforting. Some people find yeah. that depressing. I'm like, no, that's comforting to me. Oh, yeah. Just doing the best. I mean, this is something that I talk about a lot with some of my friends because we're like, all of our parents are kind of crazy. Yeah. Is it that you become crazy when you're older? Is it that we just have gravitated together because our parents are kind of crazy? Like, yeah. what is it? And she's like, nah, you're going to fuck them up. It's, yeah, that's it's it. just inevitable. <laughs> like, yeah. Just like, okay, well, hopefully just along the way can give them some tools to deal with it yep. better. I don't yep. know. I do a lot of thinking about mental health, um, particularly raising uh, two sons, because I think that that's something that we don't focus on enough with boys is actually bad luck. I'm going to fuck you up. But also <laughs> what tools are you going to need not to yeah. exit this family and be taking out your lack of emotional regulation or maturity or, you know, just even that knowledge around your own emotions mm. out into the world and kind of wreaking havoc with it. Yes. Uh, which is a big thing that I think about a lot. I don't know that I have a lot of answers other than, you know, we really do focus on experiencing those emotions and identifying them and taking them seriously. Yeah. And, talking about personal responsibility a lot, especially because I come from a family of rageaholics. So knowing that yeah. the gendered aspect of that is obviously really sticky. But, yeah, it's It's interesting when you think about the how did we fuck them up and why are our parents also crazy. By the time we've all been doing it for, I don't know, 20-odd years, yeah. I don't imagine being more sane than I was oh, no. when I started. It's interesting, though, that kind of feeling of responsibility because, I mean, I have a tendency to worry about stuff 
and think about things like what would be the worst outcome and what am I doing to mitigate that and um I mean this sorry this might come out imperfectly but I found it really interesting a lot of the reaction around Eurydice Dixon and what happened to her because the statement the police made made me really angry because it's like take care women because you are responsible you don't have a right to feel safe in a public space but the actual crime that was committed against her to me seemed less about patriarchy and violence against women and more about a man who you know had specific behavioral mental issues and everything else that goes in behind that and yeah. it, it kind of made me think well you know like Jose's got it got these particular needs like what kind of one of the worst outcomes that would happen from not being proactive in helping him and it's that he becomes a man like that what for support did that family have why was that man by himself at 11 o'clock at night when he obviously shouldn't have been because of what he did and, and how he was and to me I mean I, I don't know enough about that man and, and his family to know like where does gender fit in to it yep. and what his attitudes to women were but I thought what is the potential impact of not getting this stuff right Absolutely. how do you how do you teach people to be good people in the community as well it, I think as you say that's such an interesting case because there was so much focus on the that police statement but also um, how quickly mental illness and autism started to come in and it wasn't a conversation around well how do we support people who have mental health issues or mm. who are grappling with these things and perhaps the education system hasn't been great for them perhaps we haven't had the knowledge you know historically when that child was growing up to kind of put good things in place to support them there that wasn't the discussion it was you know on the frame of people who were going down this path it was this really simplistic well he has autism Mm -hmm. and therefore this happened which again for any of us to be claiming that we can say that direct correlation is ridiculous yes and obviously a lot of people in the um, autistic community were rightly so very upset about that because a person who is on the autism spectrum does not mean that you are an offender yeah that you want to kill people yeah but it also does mean that you know for example that doesn't mean that it's not a factor that we don't talk about when we talk about mental health and as you say what the worst case scenarios are for ignoring someone's individual needs Mm. and that's something that I think that example was really hard to listen to that public discourse yeah I felt like it was this kind of thing of it, it's this is either an issue of patriarchy causing violence against women or mental health being the problem and yes I wanted to know I mean obviously they they didn't want to be discussed but what support did his family have to be parents of a, you know like what else was going on like all those yep. kinds of things that are factors yeah not this guy was evil or this guy yep. was sick because it's somewhere in between or not even in that spectrum it's like something else entirely yeah exactly and there are enough men who grow up to be perpetrators of family violence or gendered violence or murderers absolutely autism is not a factor Mm. in so why is it so important in this case like Mm. actually we need to be talking about all of the risk factors that go into men ending up in this kind of an offending pattern and we need to be talking about all of the ways whether that is patriarchy gender mental health emotional development of young boys and men and it seems like people as you say want to have it as a really easy narrative either one thing or the other it's either patriarchy or mental health and as a community we do struggle with all of that gray area Mm. um and that's something i think about a lot raising a son where my worst case scenario and i don't know whether this is particularly about having a son i think i would probably feel this way but it wouldn't seem as important if i had a daughter probably but it would because i do think about it in terms of bullying 
bullying as well. We're talking about sexual violence in this instance, but I think I worry more about my son being a perpetrator mm. than I do being a victim. Yes, me uh, too. Yeah. I really feel that. And I know that other parents I know feel the same way. And I'm not sure why there are some of us that think that way and other people are more worried about their child being a victim. Not to say that I don't think my child could be a victim or that that wouldn't be awful. I do worry mm. about that, but I feel more responsible about them being a perpetrator. And mm. I do worry more about how to avoid that. And when I think about them potentially being a victim, I don't think about the other person. I think about how I would equip them to live through that or to survive that, hopefully as unscathed as possible. Like mm. how do I actually build that emotional resilience or how do I equip them to be able to, to deal with that? You know, whether that's schoolyard bullying or as they grow older and the context becomes more severe. And I do wonder where that conversation is at the moment in the public discourse. I read a lot of articles about what to do if your kid is being bullied or how much bullying is happening or how difficult it is to be a kid today for various reasons, but less about how do we avoid our kids becoming bullies? Yeah. How do we encourage them to be good friends and build good relationships at the very base level, for example? Yeah. And uh, I was thinking about this a bit before I, I came here because it's about like, how do you teach emotional intelligence? Yeah. And, you know, is that feminism or is that just how do we be good people? I'm much more likely to be worried about offending someone than I am around standing up for my child or like I'll make excuses for him. And I think that's that same kind of issue about worrying about them being a perpetrator rather than being a victim. And I wonder if that's because that reflects more on... (laughs) on me yeah if I'm going to kind of psychologically analyze it but I guess it's also because everything else around parenting is how do you protect your child and whereas you're right there is some stuff around how do you teach them it's just still more around how do you protect them from being a victim like body autonomy and what's safe behavior from adults and you know all those kinds of things how to stand up for themselves in appropriate ways that isn't physically retaliating how do we teach them to not want to do that yeah yeah for sure uh just little issues that won't take long to no. say It'll be fine. Yeah. It's fine. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you or the question I want to ask each person as they're on the podcast is actually about what kinds of popular culture or personal tools you use when you're thinking about gender and feminism with your kids. So whether there is a book that you particularly love or a TV show or a song or a person you point to and go, look, isn't this amazing the way this person does this? So that we can start to kind of build up, I guess, a compendium of Mm. things that we can all learn from each other and hopefully use as a bit of a library. Yeah, I'm trying to think. We've got the paper bag princess and classic. I've bought dolls and he has a lot of, you know, he has a toy kitchen and a dollhouse and all those kinds of things, which I haven't really necessarily thought as deliberately feminist and they were more like these are fun toys. Yeah. Yeah. Those toys are the building blocks of how we think about gender too. Yeah. And I think rather than there being like a particular um, resource that, I sort of go back to uh, I don't get a lot of choice around which books I read Jose yeah. like it'll be like this is what we're reading and I'm like can we please read something different no that's, that's this month's yeah. title you're yes. going to read it until you know it that's yeah. right I mean it's probably more around where I'm most conscious of it is is around the kind of language development stuff I think yeah. and thinking about that and in the tools they give me in speech therapy and how to adapt those I don't know I'll have a I'll have a look out and if I see any really good stuff I'll 
us definitely <laughs> please do i'm less in favor of the kind of things that hit you over the head and more in favor of the things that we just incorporate into our world and mm. hope they almost pick up without noticing jose watches a lot of sally and possum but i, I like that show because they really don't have gendered characters so yep. like there's amanda who's the like person who builds stuff sally does lots of things you know she's kind of more of a, a carer figure but not in a really gendered way i think and possum is just like a child he is a boy but he does lots of different things and that's one of the things that i like about that show which is really important because oftentimes shows are focusing on one thing or another so in that show for example when you're talking about language development and auslan it can be really easy to focus on that stuff and not think too hard about the other messages you're giving or the environment that you're normalizing for kids so yeah it's really good to hear and they, there is a fairly even mix of female characters one thing i did notice he started watching madagascar with adrian and so now he just kind of wants to keep watching that and i noticed oh there is literally only one female character in this entire film only one and she like barely even gets to talk and i often find myself thinking well you could be a girl well you could be a girl yeah like, actually there's look like all no the reason yeah. for them all to be male yeah, really doesn't matter yeah and yet, it's it literally a talking giraffe yeah <laughs> is it really going to break the kids minds if the talking giraffe also turns out yeah has a vulva or yeah. vagina yeah no, yeah. Don't think it's going to make a difference. I mean, I'm sort of trying to be aware of it. Excellent. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Many thanks for listening to this, my first full episode of This Is What Raising a Feminist Looks Like. I'm looking forward to bringing you more discussions with parents like Erin who are considering raising kids in a feminist framework. This episode was presented by, produced and edited by me, Leifa Singleton-Norton, with thanks to Libby Henstock and Tim Singleton-Norton for technical support. My thanks to Erin for sharing her time and her thoughts. Thanks also go to the Binder of Australian Women Podcasters group, whose members offered invaluable advice and support as I've developed this project. As always, the generosity of other women is a gift. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or in all the usual places. You can also rate it on iTunes if you enjoyed this episode and would like to help other people find it. To sign up to the accompanying tiny letter emails to the podcast, visit This Is What Raising a Feminist Looks Like on Facebook, where you can learn more about my guests and other information about feminism and parenting.